everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. Really happy for you to join us today and especially happy because we have three guests in from uh, East Tennessee State University. And I'm going to say a little bit about our guests that are joining us here just by way of introduction and then dive right in. I'm really uh, happy to have, have uh, uh input from a different discipline. These are all three pharmacy students in training. They're all in doctoral programs studying to become pharmacists. I had the chance to meet Megan, Donna, and Emily, and I, I'll let them introduce their last names, okay? But I got a chance to meet all three of them. This past June, I was invited. Uh, there was uh, the American Pharmacists Association every year puts on a, a, a week-long or close to a week-long series of workshops that are meant to be informational for pharmacists as well as pharmacists in training. And this year, I was invited to present a couple of workshops as part of that. That's where I got to meet this group. Uh, in fact, I really appreciate being introduced. Uh, they know how moved I was. I was introduced to an initiative that's, uh, they'll say more about the sponsorship and so on, but it's, it's uh, uh, co-sponsored by the American Pharmacists Association. It's, this organization is referred to gener as Generation RX, and I was deeply moved by the outreach that, that all three of these uh, uh, individuals are going to be talking about today. Outreach that's educational in, in emphasis and very much in sync with uh, so much of what we've been presenting here, though I come from a psychological perspective, they'll be coming from a pharmaceutical or pharmacological perspective. And I really think it adds value to, to what we've been uh, attempting to create here, which is a, a shame-free environment, a stigma-free environment to discuss addiction and recovery. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, Megan, Donna, and Emily are really working hard along with a nationwide organization in really primary prevention. How do we, how can we uh, stem the uh, opioid epidemic as well as the the addiction crisis writ large in the United States by good information and safe practices. And they'll talk more specifically in this today, and I'm delighted uh, to have them with us. You know, most of our focus here is on biological and psychological understandings of addiction. And we talk a lot about addiction in the brain. We've spent a lot of time, including with Odie Martinez, who's here in the studio today, in the last number of weeks, looking at what can we do to manage the shame and stigma that arise so often time around addiction and really serve as a significant barrier to treatment and to successful recovery. So our focus is primarily biopsychosocial. And if we take the social part really seriously, as, as we'll see with our guests today, what about expanding into the, the community uh, on a local, regional basis, as well as a national level? And I am uh, uh, really deeply uh, uh, impressed by what the, uh, the pharmacists across the nation are doing, both in terms of providing information uh, without, uh, you know, outside of the profession, but also their, their redemptive approach to dealing with addiction issues within the profession. This is really... Uh, really to be honored and uh, they know how deeply moved I was by finding out information about this. Since last week's podcast, I've been invited by the Texas Pharmacists Association to go visit um, uh, in Austin in October, where I'll be presenting to a, a, a conference full of, of professionals, medical professionals, everything from physicians to pharmacists to veterinarians to dentists, to optometrists, and so on, all of whom uh, themselves have experienced issues around addiction. It turns out the percentage is about the same as in the general population, about 10% of the population gets addicted to alcohol and other drugs. It, 
jumps up to 25% if you include nicotine, which is definitely, uh, certainly a, a psychoactive substance for sure, though it's legal. I'll be presenting to this group. These are people who are in recovery themselves, who go back to their professions, whether it's as veterinarians or physicians or otherwise, and uh, bring what they've learned in their recovery and do the good work that's being done by these individuals today in terms of putting out quality information. So I'm very impressed by what's happening in the medical professions. And I'm also delighted when I go back to Texas because I'll be presenting uh, the, the uh, individual who is the director of the Peer Recovery Network in Texas, which reaches out to the medical professions, herself is a licensed counselor and is working very hard at getting the state of Texas, the various licensing boards, psychology and other therapeutic uh, occupations, getting them on board with the same type of peer recovery network. And so I'm very happy to be a part of that. So anything that can expand the good word of recovery to larger uh, social systems I'm in favor of. And Megan, Emily, and Donna are here to talk about that today. So let me introduce them without any further ado. They'll be presenting on Generation Rx and some of the initiatives that they're involved in locally in East Tennessee, as well as uh, regionally and nationally. So without further ado, Megan, Emily, and Donna, thank you all very much for being with us. Really pleased to have you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Weathers. My name is Megan Ferry. I'm Emily Perez. I'm Donna Peckack. And like Dr. Weathers said, we attend East Tennessee State University, Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. And we're part of Generation RX, and we're gonna speak a little bit today about what that involves. Yeah, so Generation RX, it's actually a committee within an organization called APHA ASP. Um, that's Academy of Student Pharmacists. And we work with the community. Um, we focus mainly on educating the community in, working with all age groups. So we work with the youth, we go to college campuses, um, and you know older adults at remote area medical clinics. So I'll let them talk a little bit more about that. One of the major partners for Generation Rx is the Cardinal Health Foundation. Um, they provide grants a lot of times for many of the projects that are going on within Generation Rx. Um, and like Emily was saying, the major focus of Generation Rx is providing uh, since stressing the importance of prescription medication safety for all ages. Yeah, and we mainly focus our work in this area. So in East Tennessee, um, it's a rural area. So, you know, a lot of the people that we deal with on a daily basis don't have access to regular medical care or even healthcare professionals. So it's really a privilege for us to be out in the community and to be able to serve them in that way to, you know, even just education goes so far when it comes to, you know, like opioid misuse and, um, you know, all the different medication problems that we face. And that's one of the great things about Generation Rx is there's, depending on where you are in the country, there are different issues that your region is going to be facing. But like Emily was saying, here in Appalachia and in East Tennessee, there is such a focus on the opioid misuse crisis. Um, so Emily was saying that we get the opportunity to go to remote area medical clinics where we're training uh, volunteers that are helping out at these clinics or patients who are there for uh, whether it's dental work or vision or so many other medical reasons, uh, they're able to go to these clinics and receive medical care that they wouldn't normally be able to otherwise. And while we're at the clinics, we help train these individuals uh, with naloxone trainings. And we talk about how to respond to an opioid overdose uh, should you uh, happen across someone. And we talk about the different 
um, delivery systems for naloxone that someone as a general member of the public could give to someone if they came across an overdose person. And um, we do a lot of trainings, again, with the layperson, like at RAM clinics, and um, we try to get the word out there about naloxone and educating about naloxone to anyone that we can. And we also um, focus a lot on intra-professional education, excuse me. Um, and we really wanna stress the importance of like a team-based approach to it. And um, we've trained uh, nursing students, we've trained medical students. Um, really, we wanna get the word out there to everybody, uh, the importance of naloxone and how to address those opioid overdose situations. And from where we are as pharmacists, that interprofessional inter, uh, approach is so important because it is such a multifaceted issue um, that the opioid abuse crisis is. So talking to all aspects of the community and all aspects of the healthcare profession to really try and get to the root of that problem. Yeah, and like I was mentioning earlier, we also do a lot with the youth. So um, last year we had a really fun event. It was Trunk or Treat. And it was great because we got to dress up and have fun with the kids, but we also had flyers to give out to the parents talking about medication safety and um, different things like that. And we also hold an annual Scouts Day. So we get Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts all throughout the area, all in one place. They get to go through a bunch of different medication-related activities, you know, talking about safety and, um, you know, not taking other people's medication or taking medication that you don't know what it is. Um, just stressing the importance of those things. And then we'll also go to local elementary schools and middle schools. So those are big targets for us as well. Um, in addition to focusing on uh, opioid misuse, we'll also, uh, we are in a university setting, we also have been trying to expand our outreach into focusing on stimulant prescription misuse as well. So we've partnered, we had the opportunity to partner this past year with the pre-pharmacy organization at East Tennessee State University and talk to them about uh, approach to stimulant use and misuse um, and reasons why that is something that needs to be addressed within uh, with the youth of uh, this country, whether it's high school, college, or graduate students, or anyone who ha might happen to be misusing stimulant prescriptions. Very impressive what you all are doing. Yeah, thank you for sketching that out. There's so much there. What I want to do, uh, Megan and Emily and Donna, is maybe unpack this with you. And this is very informal. We can just go with the flow. I want you guys to trust that, okay? Um, uh, I, I jotted down some comments and questions as I was listening to you all, just because I'm a very curious boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested to know any thoughts that, that any one of you or all three of you might have around uh, an understanding of addiction, vulnerability to addiction from a pharmacological perspective. I am so steeped in psychology with all that's good about that, but also the limitations of that. So just any comments that you might have around that, and I'll, I'll work into talking and asking more into, in, about a naloxone because I want my own education, and I think there'll be viewers that will want to know more about that too. But before we go there, just any thoughts that you have from a, from a medical slash pharmacologic perspective, how do you understand kind of the birth of addiction as well as how it gets sustained. Uh, why can't people just say no? <laughs> you know, so any thoughts you all have, I'd be very curious to invite. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a very common question that we get. Um, it's it's a very complicated situation. Yeah. You know, whenever people whenever somebody's addicted to a medication, it's not just like they think that they want the drug and that's it. It's the change in brain chemistry. Whenever a person takes a medication it has an effect in their brain. 
and sometimes that can cause um, addiction, you know, maybe the second time they've ever taken a drug or, you know, for example, if you have a person that's been in a car accident, um, they'll get prescribed opioids. And maybe the first few times they take that, it changes their brain chemistry and then they become addicted to the drug. So it's yeah. not like they're choosing to do that. It's not like they went out of their way to try to or anything like that it happens to all different kinds of people and I think psychology plays a huge role in that so that's why it's so it's so great to get to talk to you and hear your perspective as well um, especially starting out as children I know a lot of the people that um, I'm familiar with that have opioid addictions or any kind of addiction it's stemmed from something in childhood so you know like traumatic events um, you know they found drugs as a way to replace um, the chemicals in their brain, you know, would be in a normal person that didn't experience traumatic events. That's one of the things we try and stress with some of the interprofessional trainings that we do is the difference between dependence, addiction, and then really trying to stress the importance of recognizing the stigma that healthcare professionals are going to see in the workplace and discussing with some of the people we train of in your work, in your rotations, or whatever it is you're doing, what kind of terminology are you hearing? Are you hearing things like calling patients frequent flyers for coming back to the hospital and trying to really be conscious about keeping an eye on using that yourself and trying to refocus the terminology as healthcare professionals? Very helpful. Uh, both uh, Emily and, and uh, Megan, what you just uh, said there, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things I was struck by when I was with you all uh, back in Salt Lake City at the, at the conference, um, and I feel it even again right now, is that coming from the background that you do with a background in pharmacology and in uh, kind of a biomedical approach, I found far less stigma uh, uh, laced in the conversations than I find ironically in the mental health professions and even more ironically within the kind of the, the recovery uh, world, kind of the subset of the mental health uh, or healthcare uh, occupations. It's very subtle, but it slips in there to where uh, people can use labels, like you just suggested, labels that, that are shaming or stigmatizing. And, uh, and I actually think about it somewhat compassionately because as we talked about at the conference, most everybody in that room knows somebody closely, if not a family member, somebody close to them that's experienced addiction. And, it's, and to, to, to love somebody that's going through the difficulties of addiction is traumatizing. So it's understandable that it would bring up reactivity in people. Uh, but having said that, I'm impressed by, the, by what you all are trying to do, which is to be more objective or neutral about this and look at it more from a perspective that is um, less about blaming or shaming and more about facilitating and empowering. I've really felt that throughout the entire conference. And I feel that with what you all are doing right now. It's very impressive to me. Yeah. I, I, I thought as you were talking, uh, Emily, of, of a couple of instances, years and years ago, I had a woman who was the valedictorian in her high school, uh, in a uh, uh, high school uh, in this country, I'll just leave it uh, indistinct. And uh, the summer after she graduated from high school, went to a party, was exposed to crack cocaine once and never stopped. It was just like, it was just, so you hear these stories. I have another story that's been repeated a number of times is working with individuals that are midlife or older that owing, like you said, I think one of you said it, Megan or, or Emily, we're in an auto accident. We're exposed to opioids for the very first time. I remember I've worked with people that were 
religious in background where they had never smoked a cigarette or drunk alcohol were exposed to an opioid as a, as a medication and became uh, uh, quickly addicted to it. And it was just ruinous in their lives. And these are people that have no background at all up to that point in terms of drug dependence or addiction. So uh, there's just heartbreaking stories across the board there. Um, I wonder if you might comment, uh, any one of you or all of you again, if you might comment, you made a distinction, I think, between dependence and addiction. And I know there's different language, but I'd be curious from a pharmaceutical or pharmacological perspective, how do you all think about that? Or how do you talk about that? Any words of wisdom there? Yeah, so for dependence, it's more of like a, just a, I'll try to put this as, as clearly as possible. It's more of like a physical thing. So you yeah. depend on a drug, and if you do not take that drug after a while, you have a, a physiological response. Yeah. Versus addiction, uh, that's more of a mental thing. So uh, it changes your brain in a way that you need drugs as if you would need water. At least your mind thinks that way. So it's like a you know an absolute need. It's not something that you just choose to have every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest distinction. That's very helpful. Thank you, Emily. Uh, you know, it makes me think that uh, the work that I do, and we talk about it a fair bit here on this podcast, the work that I do is oftentimes with people that have already gone through detox. So they've detoxed from the, um, the at least the more radical version of the dependency you're talking about. Their bodies are, are uh, they've gone through withdrawal symptoms, uh, the acute withdrawal, which is very painful and difficult for people, but they go through that in a period of days or weeks. And then we begin working with them in early recovery. And then we're really addressing what you brought up around addiction. And I'm, I'm as you guys will remember from the conference, I actually prefer the word addiction, although it can be used as a label, anything can be used as a label. I prefer that word because of its root in the Latin term, addictus, which means to be enslaved. And that gets closer to the work I do, I think, from a psychological perspective, working with people that are no longer biologically enslaved necessarily, but certainly are psychologically or emotionally enslaved to addiction. And then you end up with that phenomenon that we discussed at the conference of post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So after the acute withdrawal, then there's all of the psychological withdrawal of how, how, do, you, how do you get the brain to reset? How do we reset and heal our relationships that have been so negatively affected by addiction and so that's that's a whole nother piece so I think the distinction you make is clear in either case whether it be dependence or addiction I think it's very helpful in fact I have to tell you guys somebody wrote in as you were talking right now somebody wrote in this comment I'll read it to you all it's out of appreciation for you this this person said I really appreciate the guests attitude of reducing the shame and stigma around addiction at the same time providing education that so many people need need. So kudos to what you all are doing for sure. It, uh, it's really important what you're doing. Um, and I think a, a, a clear understanding, I've talked about this in, in some ways, that I think that shame and stigma actually paralyze us. And if we're talking about a process of recovery, I think it can actually stop people as a major barrier to sustaining successful recovery. Whereas I think the information that you all are involved in presenting as pharmacists in training and specifically through Generation Rx, I think is just the opposite. I think this information is actually freeing for people to be able to get help and to sustain help by, by, by destigmatizing, by reducing the shame. We actually call it unshaming here. Uh, kind of a term that we've invented. It's, it's unshaming addiction so that we can get down and do the work that's necessary. 
Um, let me ask you all a question or two about naloxone since you mentioned that, and I think it's a, it's it's outside of my expertise, and uh, it's very much uh, a center part of Generation RX. Anything that you'd be able to offer about that in terms of information to help our audience develop an understanding? You all are aware, as I'm aware, that there's a lot of misgivings in the field of recovery about any kind of medication and. Uh, as I shared at the conference, having grown up with a father who was a very biologically oriented psychiatrist, I really don't get, <laughs> I don't get the aversion to talking about medications that can really facilitate treatment of any disorder, including, including addictive disorders. But I'd love to hear more from your guys' experience working with naloxone, as well as how you all deal with any uh, uh, resistance or objections, because I'm sure you run into it. So I'd just like to open it up to the floor. Anything that you have to share will be gold. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, we do a lot of work with naloxone, especially in this area um, with the opioid epidemic so prevalent here. Yeah. Um, so naloxone is the opioid overdose anecdote. Um, and so we really like to tell people that it can save somebody's life that has overdosed from an opioid. Um, and it has saved many lives in the past. And in fact, that's one of the to me, most meaningful parts of doing the naloxone education is hearing the patient stories about times when either they've received naloxone or they've given it to somebody else. Um, and just those experiences, sharing that with the patient, and, you know, kind of brings meaning to everything that we've been doing. Um, so naloxone, again, it's the opioid overdose anecdote. Um, as soon as you administer it to somebody, it does put them into those immediate withdrawal symptoms that anybody that suffers from substance abuse disorder is trying so hard to avoid. Um, and so we really like to stress that naloxone is not just for those with substance abuse disorder, um, your so-called drug addicts um, that people like to refer to them as. Really naloxone is for anyone and it, we try to train anyone and everyone that we can. It's so important. Um, it's sad, but it's been used on children. Um, you know, maybe a patch or something has been found in a park and the kid gets into it and happens to overdose that way. Or an elderly person that suffers from dementia maybe forgets that they've taken their opioid prescription that morning and then takes it again and um, can have an overdose in that situation as well. So it's just, um, we really try to get the word out there that naloxone is not just for, you know, your quote unquote drug addicts out there. Yeah. And we also try and stress with, because like you said, there are people that are resistant to some of the things that we're saying and they have their head uh, set on the fact that it's um, people that are choosing to misuse uh, medications. And we really try and stress that there are, like Donna said, there are so many different reasons why someone might be, find themselves in an overdose state. Um, and we really try and stress that with people and make sure that at least try and send them away with something to think about. If, even if they're not willing to stop and stay for one of our trainings, at least leave. And I've actually had, there was one gentleman uh, last summer, we were at a remote area medical clinic and he had that mindset and he actually came back to one of the trainings. So it's great to see that people are at least willing to stop and think about it. Yeah, yeah, not only that, but whenever we do the naloxone trainings, we're not just talking about the medication. We'll go into the details of how addiction is a disease and how it, you know people should be treated as patients in those cases. I think that's a great part about being in pharmacy schools that we're able to, you know, we have access to the knowledge and to the um, the material to understand how addiction is a disease. So we're able to look at it more objectively and you know with an open mind and an open heart instead of just thinking that 
people are out doing drugs and they don't care and all of this other stuff. So. Yeah. And one thing specifically about naloxone we try and stress with people is that there's no abuse potential for it. So it works as a full antagonist on those opioid receptors in your body. So basically that means that it's completely kicking the opioids off. You're not going to experience any of those pain relieving effects that you'd normally have or if the drug is being misused, you wouldn't experience any of that euphoria. So there's a lot of people out there that are worried that it's going to be misused in a similar way that opioids are, but how the drug functions in the body, there's no possibility for that. So we like to try and make sure that point uh, sticks with people. I think it's very clear, the, very clear the way that y'all are talking about it. And it's just, it's about correcting misinformation, isn't it? I've, I've run into this over the years in terms of, of, of sometimes attitudes towards individuals that are being maintained on antidepressant medication, as if you can take antidepressant medication and get a buzz. It's just like, it's just really incredible ignorance. And I think good information can really help help set, the, set that straight. Let me ask for clarification. I think uh, uh, one of you might have mentioned uh, about the withdrawal, uh, uh, could you say more about that with with the naloxone? That that what are the? I, I understand that it's not something people take to party. That's for sure. Can you say more about that immediate withdrawal? It sounds like it's very acute and and quite unpleasant. So basically, uh, anyone who has used opioids in the past and has developed a dependence and stops using them, they're going to experience those feelings of withdrawal, and that can be anything from um, just severe pain, uh, down basically down to the bone, aching pain, uh, just feelings of nausea. And when you give someone naloxone, all of those feelings of withdrawal that someone's ever felt, they feel that immediately. The drug works okay. in about 30 to 45 seconds. So all of those horrible feelings are amplified so quickly in the person. So that's what I mean by immediate withdrawal. That makes complete sense. Thank you. As soon as you began talking, Megan, I could, okay, now I get it. So it, it, because it's an antagonist, any kind of opioid in the system can no longer be accessed. And so that person is left in an acute kind of a, a, a deficit state and if and their bodies are gonna respond whatever, however they do, but it's very unpleasant. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I wonder if you all might talk about this. It's heavy on my heart and I've done a bit of reading, but I don't live where you all do. We certainly have problems every place in the country, but I remember being at the conference with you all and there was somebody from the, the very small state of West Virginia, which is not far from where you all are, and they talked about the prevalence there. Can you talk a little bit more about this in terms of you all being in, in East Tennessee and just, uh, you know, in, near Virginia and, uh, uh, you know, I guess the prevalence and why that would be the case and just a bit into that. It would be, I think it'd be educational for us to hear about it. You all are right in the center of what so many articles on a national level are addressing. Yeah, so I'm actually originally from West Virginia. Are you? So, okay. okay. So I have an interesting perspective from, you know, being there and here. Yeah. And I would have to say it's still very prevalent. Um, I think it has to do with the communities that we live around. Um, you know, there are more rural communities, you have people that live way back in the mountains. Um, it's a lot of other health issues. So, you know, you have obesity, depression, all of these things that are, um, more, you know, very much in this area. So I think that has a lot to do with um, opioid addiction and how the, those things kind of intermingle together and it kind of increases the prevalence in this area. So. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, as you're talking, Emily, what I, what I think about is that one of the chief hypotheses uh, 
in the addiction literature is this, it's just referred to as the self-medication hypothesis. And I'm very aware of this working with people from more of a psychological perspective. How many individuals I've worked with, uh, in fact, I can think of somebody I'm working with right now that suffers from tremendous amount of anxiety. And if that's untreated, whether psychologically or pharmacologically, this person uh, is not gonna be able to sustain sobriety. And certainly the case with, with uh, so many of the clients I've worked with that have, have lifelong depressions and have found some way, you mentioned stimulants earlier, some way via stimulants or some other uh, some other form of, of ingesting some substance to help regulate themselves. You guys coming from a pharmacological perspective, I wonder what your thoughts are about that in terms of, of, of people self-medicating, kind of another angle for looking at what gets people into addictive spirals. Any thoughts about that from any of you? Yeah, so most of the people that I've come into contact with that have some, some kind of addiction usually another underlying yeah. uh, I know especially from my small town in West Virginia a lot of the people there they you know they're very poor they're very depressed um, they just face a lot of different issues and I don't think that we can really properly address addiction in general without also addressing mental illnesses because I think that they do kind of coincide together yeah. and feed off of each other in a way I really agree with you, Emily. I, I, sometimes I think of it almost in terms of concentric circles, is that we can focus on the individual's biology, and that's really, that has huge priority in my way of viewing it. But if you expand that to include that person's psychology, their emotional makeup, their cognitive strengths and, and limitations, and then expand it into relationships, and then expand it into the community in which they're embedded, like what you're mentioning in West Virginia or any area. I come from Central California, which is enormously uh, uh, encumbered right now just with uh, you know it's it's a economically depressed area uh, it's it's a very stressful place to live for people to make a living and so on and those social and economic factors play right into addiction it's no accident that there's lots of meth labs up in Central California people are wanting to get high just as some way to to medicate that I'm not given blessing to medication but at least what you all are talking about and how I feel about this is let's at least honor somebody by uh, by giving respect to the context in which they're in, in which they're addicted. I think it really matters a lot. Uh, Emily or Donna, do you, excuse me, Megan or Donna, do you have thoughts about this whole area about self-medication, especially in the context in which you all are going to school and so on? Be curious. Like Emily said, a lot of the people in this area or West Virginia or really wherever in the Appalachian region do um, experience a lower socioeconomic status. So they might not have enough money to go to the doctor in some cases and you know maybe grandma or grandpa has a prescription from a year or two ago that they yeah. got when they yeah. were in the hospital and you know I have a little bit of a pain so I might just take that instead of going to the doctor and and really the disease of addiction is so strong it can happen to anybody yeah. no yeah. one is exempt from it so just really the fact that it, wherever the medication comes from addiction can really happen to anybody and that's one of the things we're so fortunate about as with Generation Rx, we have so many different branches. Um, and like we said before, we'll talk to the youth uh, in the community, go into the health classes in the elementary and middle schools. And that's one of the things we talk about them uh, with them is making sure you only take medicine that is prescribed for you. And we don't necessarily target it for opioids or anything else, but we're just trying to reinforce with them why it's so important to only take what's been prescribed to you um, instead of self-medicating or anything like that. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you, thank you, uh, Megan. I wanted to ask you all, what, what is the uh, receptivity, of, uh, especially when you're talking about going into high schools? I'm curious, just the message you just shared, uh, Megan, uh, open up for any of you to comment on that in terms of their openness to hearing this and what's your sense of their applying what you're wanting to teach them, applying it to their own lives. I'd be curious. It's an interesting uh, just approach in general, just because we haven't had the opportunity to work with that many high schoolers. Okay. Um, we're hoping to expand that somewhat with our stimulant presentation. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how they how they receive it. But a lot of times, with your elementary and middle schoolers, they're very good about it, just because we're able to. Uh, we have them tell stories of have you ever taken anything that wasn't prescribed to you? Have you ever taken anything over the counter? Uh, just trying to get that them talking about it and thinking about it and then advising them like I said before making sure unless it's given to you by a parent or given to you through a prescription from a doctor uh, just keeping that in mind so they're actually very good about um, being receptive to it I would say there are a couple of barriers so um, unfortunately some people that have opioid use disorder or another um, use disorder maybe they're not as functional parents as they would like to be so yes. I think that sometimes children you know they may not be as receptive because they have this pr perspective of their parent not being the best parent so I think if anything we could run into barriers with that um, but usually whenever we talk to students and we explain very thoroughly you know what's going on they they open their mind a little bit more with that appreciate what you just said, Emily. It, it seems like to me you all are very uh, invested in interprofessional uh, or interdisciplinary uh, work and training and so on. And it makes me think of how it is that the work that therapists do, for example, working with couples, working with families, working with within the home context, it would go hand in hand with what you're what you're wanting is that, yes, you can you can help educate children from elementary school on uh, to, to not to not take medication that hasn't been prescribed to them, but they live in a family context, and some of those family contexts are really under duress, and so it makes it more challenging. And so it just it's like that gets more in the domain of the people that are working with the families. And I can imagine that, uh, God willing, over time there'll be more in hand in hand work. My own daughter is a social worker uh, uh, in the Fort Worth, Texas area, and works with educators. Uh, working with little Johnny and Susie in the classroom, works with their families at home to make sure that there's a coordination between the problems that Johnny and Susie are having at school and understand that oftentimes it's related to a, a challenging or stressful context at home. And it just makes sense to look at as big a part of the picture, as big a picture as you can. And it sounds like you guys have your eyes open for that. Uh, what are some, some uh, safe practices beyond what we've talked about in terms of don't take medication that has been prescribed. Any any uh, thoughts from what you all uh, bring to to uh, your audiences around safe practices with medications generally? I'm just curious for our learners, uh, for our uh, learners, our, te our our students here. What what might you suggest for safe practices? I think we can apply it here uh, in our own audience. Well, one of the initiatives that we um, are able to work with is um, we bring to the kids is this concept of candy versus medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and just having them, and a lot of these, uh, we're working with fifth or sixth graders, and a lot of them are very aware of, we'll, have, we'll bring out a game where we show them uh, different multivitamin gummies versus uh, fruit gummies. And they're, they're usually pretty able to pick out uh, the differences. Sometimes they are surprised by the results. 
But then we have them a lot of times think about, well, do you have any younger siblings? Can you see them getting into something? So just uh, starting the conversation, like I was saying earlier, starting the conversation young, of being aware of what you're putting in your body. Another thing that we like to focus on too is um, medication disposal. Um, again, like I was saying earlier, being able, children or really anybody being able to get into medication that's still in the house um, can also be an issue. And so we like to um, discuss, you know, safe ways that you can dispose medication that you aren't using anymore um, so that, you know, you can't get into it again later and that anybody else that's not meant to get into it can't also get into it. Yeah, yeah so we usually try to have some kind of medication take back day. Um, actually, in this area, we just got a pharmacy that has like a permanent disposal bin. So that was like a pretty big deal. There was a ribbon cutting and everything and um, maybe work with them as well. Uh, really appreciate all the creativity that, that you're uh, employing. Can you all say a little bit about uh, Generation RX uh, on, on a, uh, a national level? I, I got the impression very much when I met you all at the conference, there were representatives from all over the country. Uh, uh, is this same type of work that you all are doing in, at, out of East Tennessee State, is this happening across the country in other organizations, other student pharmacy organizations? Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, each region of the country has different issues that seem to be a main focus. Even here in Tennessee, the issues that we see at East Tennessee State aren't necessarily the issues that University of Tennessee is seeing out in Memphis. So there are variations in focuses, but on the overarching level of Generation Rx's mission of safe medication practices for all ages, that is definitely at the core of everything the organization does across yeah. the country. Yeah, and I think it's great how different schools have different focuses. So I think it was University of New Mexico or something. They have like a bilingual um, yes. chair. So they'll come out into the community and um, they deal with a more Spanish population, which I think is fantastic because, you know, I mean, who else would want to be able to talk to them in that way if they don't have access to medical care? I remember their presentation. I remember attending them in one of the breakout groups. I was very impressed by that. You also make me think, uh, Megan, your comment, you make me think, I just read in the, in the Los Angeles Times, is the last day or two there was an article around, uh, I don't know that they use this term, but it was, it was in reference to the uh, prevalence of cocaine abuse here in the LA area. So you can imagine, you know, different regions will have different uh, things that are higher profile right now. And I, I, I set the article aside to read it in depth. I just kind of scanned it to begin with, but it would be different in different regions of the country for sure. I know if you go inland from, from, uh, from the Los Angeles area into San Bernardino County, it's the largest county in the United States. And I think it also has about the highest prevalence of methamphetamine abuse in the country. And so there's a, it just depends on where you are regionally, it seems like to me. Um, I'm very impressed by, by so many things that you all are bringing, and, and one of those includes your team-based approach, wanting to be in conversation with, you mentioned nurses and, and uh, uh, you know, training in medical schools. Can you comment a little bit more on that in terms of what you're doing and also what you envision for the future for Generation Rx in terms of kind of working hand-in-hand -hand with other disciplines? Any comments about that? Oh yeah, okay, so um, one of the biggest events that we were able to do this past year is with the um, National Nursing something. National Assist Student Nursing Association. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Yep. Conference, and we were able to train all of the students on naloxone and how to use it. Um, so bigger things like that, that's that's what's in our view right now, is just 
maybe going to more national conferences for different healthcare professional specialties, um, that would be a really great thing for us, I think. And I've really enjoyed the interdisciplinary stuff that we've gotten to do. We have a medical school here at East Tennessee State University that we've gotten to partner with, and the nursing school is here, here as well. Um, but we've also got, gotten to go a little bit further into the state, and uh, we went to Lincoln Memorial, and we're doing, we got to train their uh, interprofessional class with some of their uh, doctor of osteopathy students, and there's physical therapy and um, nursing as well, I believe, and getting to just because one of the biggest things I think I mentioned at the beginning is there's so many different facets to uh, prescription misuse and in our area opioid misuse and just having all uh, components of a healthcare team being on the same page but being able to bring their different skills and focuses and while you have a core uh, piece of information, you're able to bring the different things that you've learned in your different classes and really help a patient overcome their the adversity that they're dealing with and begin to thrive again. And we don't stop at students either at the remote area medical clinics. Um, we'll train everybody from patients to volunteers. So any of the dentists or you know nurses or anybody that's there or any lay person that's there volunteering, uh, we train them at the RAM clinics too. We're just really trying to get that word out there. Yeah, and also for our stimulant awareness presentation, that's going to be geared a lot towards, you know, medical students and um, other healthcare professional students, just because that is such a problem that's plaguing, you know, many graduate students as well as undergraduate students that are going into those very high stress um, programs that where people feel like they have to perform above, you know, everybody else. <laughs> it's very stressful and very competitive, and um, that's a big target for us, and we'd like to get involved with other colleges and universities, not just in our state, but in other states on a national level. Yeah, I think it's a fabulous idea. I really appreciate that, Emily. Um, it, you know, as I'm listening to you all right now, as you're sharing, it makes me think that it wasn't so many years ago when I began a conversation with various physicians that I knew locally, they would share with me an experience that's very similar to my own experience. I shared this at the conference, which is that uh, I went through a six-year doctoral program in clinical psychology in which I didn't have one course on, on addiction. In fact, I had one lecture out of one course in six years. Now that's a few years ago and I'll readily admit that, but I've spoken to physicians even more recently who went through medical school, let's say in the last 10 years, and they'll talk about having had something very similar to that. So physicians that are out prescribing these medications uh, uh, that are uh, unfortunately being abused with virtually no background in addiction medicine at all. And I'm so appreciative from coming from the conference with you all and then having you here today where that's changing, I mean, at like exponential rate. The amount of education that you're doing across disciplines, Donna, you talked about going to nurses, going to doctors, uh, uh, taking it to, to graduate students, uh, medical students, etc. That's radical in terms of how they can change the culture, it seems like to me. And uh, it's you guys that are part of what's doing that, which is really encouraging. It's not the same world that was even 10 years ago in terms of education within the various professions, particularly the medical professions. I'm very impressed by that. Uh, so many kudos to you all. Yeah, yeah. I'm so appreciative. Is there? Are, are, do you have any other observations from your experience? Uh, 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 wishes for the future? Questions for me? Anything at all? Just kind of open it up for a minute or two here. I guess one of the things we like to try and drive home with people is if you do have someone with in your life that has the disease of addiction, just 
even if it's difficult, trying your best to stay there, to be there for the person, be there as a resource when they are finally ready to take that next step. Um, that's one of the things that our mentor stresses with us is every single time a person overdoses, it's an opportunity for them to get help, get into a rehabilitation program, um, and refocus their thinking and their lives. Yeah. So that's yeah. one of the things we try and stress. Yeah. As a teacher, we really like to see the, you know, the end of the stigma. Um, addiction is a disease, and as soon as we all start treating it like one, then I think that we can really move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely does not discriminate. There are people that are surgeons, there are people that, you know, you know, it could be your, your best friend that has become addicted to a drug and has a opioid use disorder or another use disorder. So it really can affect any person, any socioeconomic class. Um, and like Megan was saying, just make sure that, you know, you care for those people because they need help. That's that's the truth. They need help. They don't need somebody that is going to turn their back on them and um, say, forget it, because that just kind of worsens the problem, I think. You all, you all three of you are such good psychologists. <laughs> I say that completely respectfully. I, you know how strongly I endorse what you're saying around what can we do to reduce the shame and stigma. I really think that shame in the context of addiction is killing. It just, it just, uh, uh, it makes the, uh, a bad problem worse, it seems like to me. And I just so appreciate the heart of what you're saying. Uh, I, I spent the last uh, uh, few days reviewing the psychological literature around something that I introduced at the conference, uh, and it's referred to as fundamental attribution error. And the idea here, and how this comes up in addiction, is that, and it's implied in what Emily just said, is that we'll take an individual who's gotten themselves into a fix around, uh, no pun intended, around addiction, and then we'll ascribe all kinds of negative characteristics to that person and make them bad make them, uh, you know, that, that they should suffer because they're, they're, uh, they're doing awful things to themselves without an appreciation for the fact, I sometimes say this to clients, that if you take anybody who's walking up and down the sidewalk just outside our window right now and introduce them to the substances that you all are trying to help educate people about, introduce them to those substances, that person will eventually become addicted. There's not a one of us that's immune from that. And I think somehow to kind of level the playing field and uh, in terms of attribution to realize that addiction is a disease and given addictive substance in that situation most everybody eventually will become uh, addicted and that so then to make uh, uh, character attributions about that person's personality or about their morality and so on is not only not helpful but also inaccurate it's just really it has a very predictable outcome in terms of paralyzing that person in shame and uh, one of the the uh, Synonyms for shame in psychology is simply self-stigmatization. That is, when I internalize stigma coming from the outside and I'm doing that to myself, I no longer need the outside. I'm doing it to myself just fine, thank you very much. And by any other definition, that's shame. And so in that sense, shame will get us stuck inside ourselves. So. What you all are doing is blessed, and I really, really appreciate it. I want to thank you all, and I, well, you know, one question I have for for you all, uh, Megan, Donna, and Emily, is there any way that anybody observing this, uh, watching this uh, uh, presentation today, might be able to contact you for any kind of information? I wonder if you all have information available through Generation RX or otherwise, where people want to be educated themselves about whether it's safe practices around uh, prescription medications or more about naloxone, how might I recommend that they get a hold of you all? 
Yeah, so we have um, a Facebook account that anybody can follow. Oh, it's great. just yeah, it's East Tennessee State University Generation RX. Right. Um, we'd right. also be happy to share our email addresses with you if you would like to convey the message. Um, That's the awesome. Maybe what I'll do is I'll 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 if if I've got your permission, I'll take because I have all three of your email addresses. I'll take that and give that to Austin and Odie here, and they can place that in uh, in the Facebook account here as well as the YouTube videos. Um, let, let me just say this is that this this uh, this interview will be archived as I said earlier in YouTube and I really want you all to feel free to, to, to put this out there distribute this out there you know we'll be doing that too and hopefully there'll be people that will reach out to you whether it's through your email or just what you said through the Facebook group uh, Emily and uh, the conversation can continue I really enjoy meeting with you all and after after we meet today and if something comes to your mind that you wanted to say that you might have forgotten to say or something Feel free to reach out to me and I'll, I'll get the word out here. Anything else before we sign off for today? I don't think, I don't think so. so. Thank I'm you so much. glad to have met all three of you. I really, I can picture sitting at your feet there at the conference learning from you. And let this be a real blessing to all, all of your colleagues across the country, what you're doing in Generation RX. I think you know this, but the day it was announced, I think it might have been the first evening when, when uh, the, uh, the kind of the organizer announced this, I actually broke into tears when I heard about what you're doing. I was so moved by this because I was just ignorant being in this other discipline and want to bring the good energy you're doing into my discipline for sure but I just I'm deeply touched by what you're doing and I think if people want some good news amidst I mean there's not a day that goes by that you can't be checking out of a grocery store uh, line and find a magazine or an article in the newspaper about the opioid epidemic it's very serious right now and uh, I think earlier Donna, you mentioned this, the idea of an antidote. I think you guys are an antidote to hopelessness. I really want to thank you that you, you really, really restore hope for, for what can happen and uh, from the grassroots up. So I give many blessings to all of you. You can't see me, but I'm bowing to you right now and thanking you for joining us. Blessings to all of you guys. You guys take good care. Good luck to you. And we'll stay in touch, okay? Yeah, thank you. Donna Metcalf, Megan Ferry, and Emily Perez. Bless you guys' hearts. Thank you, guys. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll be coming back next week for uh, another guest uh, to be presented. We'll be looking at holistic approaches to addiction recovery next week. Chew on what Donna, Megan, and Emily presented today. Let me know if you have any questions. If you want to send to them, you can submit those to me, and I'll make sure that they get those. We'll also upload their email addresses so you can reach out directly to them. Thank you all, and thank our guests from East Tennessee State University. You guys take good care. Bye-bye. <laughs>